and open up to Luke 18. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 30. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 1039. We've been going through our series of um, Jesus' call for us in our lives to go and spread the good news of the gospel. Today we look at a passage in which it actually encourages us to encourage others to examine their hearts, to say, what is good? What is sin? What is wicked in your life? But this passage is not just for those who we evangelize for. This is for us as well. We need to examine our hearts before we encourage others to examine theirs. So look with me as I read. This is a reading from Luke 18, 18 through 30. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus says to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers, or parents, or children, for the sake of the kingdom of God, will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we have a call to go out and spread the good news of the gospel, that you rescued us, that you saved us, and and from our joy within our relationship with you, we can preach that good news. We pray, though, that we examine our own hearts, that we recognize that there is nothing within us that we should call good, that we can even come close to obtaining the goodness that is presented in you. We pray that we recognize our idols in our lives, the things that we hold on to too tightly, that we release them, that we present them to you, that we give them over to you to be taken out of our lives and freed from the bounds of slavery. And we pray that we find no comfort in this world, but find comfort in you alone. In your name, amen. So how do you feel being told what to do? How do you feel being told what to do? And now it might depend on the person telling you what to do. It might depend on the situation. So let's imagine it's me. I'm telling you um, what to do. And the situation is this. I have a telephone pole about this high. I want you to stand on top of the telephone pole. I want you to put your arms across your chest, and I want you to fall straight back into the arms of six strangers. How do you feel being told what to do? Now, some of you are the adventurous type, or some of you might have done a trust fall before, and you jump up right away and say, I'm, I'm, I'll do it. I'll jump on the telephone pole. I'll go down. Um, some of you might be a little hesitant at first and, and want to see a few people go before you do it. So you wait and you watch and you say, okay, it's something I'll, I'm willing to try. Some of you might reasonably have a decent amount of questions, like how high is the telephone pole? How many people have been hurt because of this? What are you th- Why do I have to do this? Why are you asking me to do this? Um, and then there's some of you who would just look at me point blank and say, no, no way, not in a million years. 
and you turn and go in the opposite direction. Now that is just a funny little story, but let's change the situation. Let's say it's Jesus, and he is telling you to sell everything that you have. How would you feel being told what to do? And this is actually where we see the rich man in the story, and, and we see his answer. His answer is to go in the opposite direction, to say no way, and walk away sad. And this is actually sort of the continual story of Scripture, it seems like. God brings his people to himself. He loves them. He shares wonderful things with them. He gives them mercy. And he says, I want you to stay within this fence line. I want to care for you. I want to protect you like sheep. And they say, no way. And they go in the opposite direction. And, and we have to be honest, this is the story of our lives as well. God calls us to look to him alone for goodness, for salvation and comfort. But we look to ourselves as good. We think we can save ourselves, and we look to the comforts of this world. So as much as this passage is talking about wealth, it's actually giving us three things. It's telling us three things that we need to look for in God alone. God for his goodness, God for his salvation, and God for his comfort. So first, God alone is good. Now imagine for a second that a friend comes up to you and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Is that not the best question as a Christian, right? We would jump on the opportunity. I know I would, I would pull out a sheet of paper. I'd start doing the cross chart. I'd, I'd put God on one side and say he's perfect. I'd put us on the other. I'd say we're sinners. I'd put sin in the middle. I'd say there's no way that we can get to God. But don't worry, Jesus built a bridge across to connect us between us and God and our sin. I'd get excited. I'd talk way too much because I'm a pastor, so I'd spend 15 minutes before he'd get a word in. So we'd jump at the opportunity to do that. But it actually seems like in this passage that Jesus misses the shot and goes in a different direction. But of course, we recognize that Jesus is infinitely more wise than me. So what does he say? He asks the ruler, he says, why do you call me good? And what Jesus is doing here is tactfully gauging the man's heart. He's seeing where the man is at. And he goes on to sort of ask, answer the question, what is true goodness? And this is what Jesus' answer is. He says, no one is good except God alone. And this is actually, again, probing the man's heart by giving him further questions that he needs to answer, which is, if you call me good, does that mean you believe I'm God? Does that mean that only God is good? And the major question that he's asking the man is, do you believe you are good? And we have to be honest that it seems like the ruler is being sincere here. He is not a Pharisee. He's not trying to trap Jesus in a series of questions. He's sincerely asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But the question comes from a place of uh, a foundation, a, wor a worldview in which it's a place of works. It's a place of status. It's a place of earning. And Jesus actually doesn't respond to the man by giving him a series of tasks or ideals or saying, if, you, if you're this good, then you can, you can get up to God's level. But instead, Jesus is presenting the man with a relationship. Goodness is found in God alone. A relationship with the one who is good. Jesus is shifting the conversation from what the man must do to the God who is and does good. And this feeling, this idea that the ruler has that somehow he can earn his salvation, that he can be good enough, that, that 
you know, I, my works is the thing that distinguishes whether I'm good or bad is something that is so prevalent in this world. I can't tell you the amount of times that when people find out that I'm a pastor, the conversation goes something like this. Now, pastor, I'm not what you call a church-going man, but I'm good. I, I volunteer once in a while. Whenever there's a natural disaster, I make sure to give to some fund to care for, for the wildlife. Now, how would you respond when you get the, into that kind of conversation? Of course you aren't good. You're a sinner. What are you talking about? Or this is, is this an opportunity that Jesus takes and that we should take as well to point to the overwhelming goodness found in God alone? And it's not just other people. It's us. It's, it's me. I can't tell you the amount of times that I need to remind myself, and better yet, God needs to remind me that my role, my works, my actions— Everything that I try to place my hope in of saying that I am good is filthy rags, is nothing. Only God is good, which means I'm the opposite, not good. And when those times come, when those times come that I think that I can, can get close to the goodness of God, those are the times that I need to gaze upon the beauty of the goodness of the Lord, the overwhelming nature of God. And this will be the thing. If we, if we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, that will be the thing that will destroy any sense of goodness within us. Luke has actually spent the last 17 chapters highlighting Christ's goodness. The, he's, he's presented a narrative so we can see and experience and hear the goodness of Christ. The example given of, of Jesus loving the woman who anointed his feet with oil, this woman who's a prostitute, this woman who is disrupting an entire party, this woman who shouldn't be there, this woman who is interrupting this, the wise teaching of Jesus, we would look at her and say, what is going on here? And yet, Jesus loves her. Can I ever be that loving? Or the calming of the storm in which the winds and the waves come and the disciples are freaking out, and Jesus not only calms the storm, but calms their hearts. Can I ever provide that much peace to someone, or even have that much peace in my own life? And Jesus is teaching the parables, the parables of the Good Samaritan, in which a man is in a ditch, half dead, and the people who should be rescuing him pass him by, and yet an outsider, a man who is unclean to him, comes and rescues him and spends time and spends resources to mend him back to health, to save him, to save his life. Can I ever be that merciful? Can we even come close to the goodness of the Lord? The entire point of Scripture is for us to look and taste and see the goodness of God that is found in him alone and in nothing in this world and nothing in our lives. So we need to see the goodness of the Lord, not try to find the goodness in our own works or in this world, because nothing compares. And we need eyes to see God's goodness, because like this ruler, we all have the temptation to claim ourselves as good, to be blind and think that our goodness comes from our works, that our goodness comes from our roles, that our goodness comes from our church attendance. But nothing, nothing that we do, nothing that we show love for, nothing that we show peace for, nothing that we show mercy for, can even come close to the overwhelming goodness of the Lord. And not only is God alone good, but God alone is our salvation. 
And now the ruler answers the heart question that Jesus was getting at. Do you consider yourself good? And how does the ruler respond? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I, I've kept all the commandments. I am a good person. And actually what happens, and the ruler doesn't realize this, is that if Jesus says, only God is good, and then the ruler goes, well, I'm good as well. He's putting himself either on the same status or claiming to be God. And once again, you who have the right theology want to jump up and say, no, no, you're not good. No, you're a sinner. Let me point out your sins for you. But Jesus doesn't just go through a list of things that he hasn't done well. What Jesus actually does is challenge this man's heart and what he worships. Look at verse 22 and 23. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing, Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was a man of great wealth. What Jesus is doing is not just challenging this man's works that make him think he's good, but, this, but Jesus is actually challenging this man's idol, an idol that is wicked, that is evil, that has put this man into slavery, that is vile, that has taken hold of his heart, which says, this, this money says to him, you can't live without me. There's no way you can give me up because you need me. And what's amazing is Jesus is actually coming to the conclusion of answering the evangelism question. Jesus is saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Go to God because only he is good and we are sinners. Only those who recognize their sin can be saved. If you claim to be God or claim to be good, you don't need God. But you need to recognize your sin so that you can go to God and say, I need forgiveness. Only those who recognize their sin, recognize their idol, recognize their wickedness, recognize the thing that tried to keep them down will be able to release it, give it over to God, and have eternal life. And this is the gospel. This is the whole point that Jesus is getting to for this man, is saying that God alone is good. God is the one who cares for you. God is the one who's going to complete the work. As we just sung, Jesus is the one who did it all, who paid it all, who finished it all. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves, but God saves us. And God saves those who are able to recognize their sin, who recognize that they need a Savior because He presents Himself as that Savior. And what He's saying to the ruler is He's saying, turn away from false idols, turn away from false gods, and turn to the true, good, loving, salvation God. He's presenting the gospel to him. And if this ruler really did keep all the commandments, which we know he didn't, but if he kept all the traditions of the Jewish traditions, then he would remember those times in which he would have to go to the temple to present a sacrifice for the Lord, for his sin, present a burnt offering. And what he would do is he would take an unblemished animal, which was supposed to be costly to the people, but for a rich ruler, it probably wasn't that costly. And he would present it to the priests and say, this animal is going on my behalf as an atonement for my sin. And as he's in front of the priest, he would take his hand and put it on the animal's head. And that was to be a symbol to everyone watching, but more importantly, it was to be a reminder to his head and more importantly to his heart that what is about to be done to this animal should be done to him. What is going to happen to this animal should be done to him because of his sin. And he would present it to the priest, and the priest would sacrifice it on his behalf to the Lord for forgiveness of sins. And what Jesus is now saying to the ruler 
is I want you to do the same thing with your wealth. I want you to take your wealth. I want you to take it to the altar of the Lord, and I want you to present it to Him. Give it all to Him. Sacrifice it to Him. Present it before Him and be forgiven. And there's two questions that I'm going to ask that I think will help us get into the heart or understanding of where the ruler is at. And the first question I think you're going to recognize, and it's this. Are you willing to die for your country? Now, when I say that, what do you think of? Military, right? It's a common military question that, you know, young cadets kind of get asked by people around them, and, and usually they respond with that stern, yes, I'm willing to do that. But those who've been in a military a while usually ask another question that most of us are not so familiar with. And the question is this. All right, if you're willing to die for your country, are you willing to kill for your country? And that usually causes a pause in a lot of people. And this is the same pause that has come over the ruler. What Jesus is saying to the ruler is, are you willing to kill for me? Are you willing to take your wealth, which has become your idol, take it to the altar of the Lord, and kill it? Kill what you have placed your hope and your comfort and your salvation and your security in, and instead, follow me. And so this is the same question that we need to answer. Are you willing to kill for Jesus? Are you willing to kill the things that you have misplaced comfort in, misplaced hope in, misplaced security in, take them and surrender them at the altar of the Lord? To take it, to, to take the thing, to kill the thing that has been holding on to your heart, that thing that has put you under slavery, that thing that you say, if, if I lose this, I will have no hope. Are you willing to kill that for Jesus? And trust me, I know, I know the feeling. Listen, there's some of you in this room right now in which your sin or your idol or Satan himself is trying to convince you, you can't do this. You can't give this up. It will kill you. You won't be happy. But go. Go to the one who is good alone. Go to the Lord himself and present the sacrifice at his altar. And if you've never done that today, if you've never presented any of your sins before God, if you've never confessed your sin before God, then do it today. Admit that you're a sinner. Admit that you've chased idols. Admit that you've had false gods. And instead, turn to the one who will give you salvation, to the one who says, I will give you eternal life, not based on your works, but based on your love for me. But for all of us today, we have to answer the question right here and right now. What is the Lord calling us to kill today? What is Jesus saying to you right now? You still lack one thing. Give this up and follow me. Could it be money? Is it money where you say, listen, if, if I had to give a significant portion of what I have, I couldn't do it. I would walk away sad. Is it indulgences? It's not wrong to have a drink, but have you been looking to that for comfort at the end of the day or comfort in this world? Is it a relationship in which you look at that relationship and you need to put it to death because you recognize when you are with that person, your relationship with God is worse, that it causes you to stumble, it causes you to sin? Is it an attitude of the heart that the things that come out of your mouth, the gossip, the slander, the, the complaining is something that needs to be put to death, that needs to be given over to God? 
Think about what in your life, if Jesus looked you straight in the eyes and said, give this up, you would have the temptation to walk away sad. If you have that feeling, then that's probably the thing that you need to give up and kill for Jesus. Don't go away sad. Confess it before the Lord. Bring it to the altar of the Lord. Confess it before others. Talk to a pastor about it. Take it to the altar of the Lord and surrender to him. Because the whole act of taking the animal to the priest is to say, I am in mourning, I am in sadness because my sin has overtaken me and I need to present this before the Lord. But when the animal is sacrificed, you get to walk away rejoicing because you've been forgiven. And this is the same with your idol, is take your idol, take this thing that has enthroned you, that has captured you, that has made you a slave, and bring it to the altar of the Lord. Give it to the Lord, and there will be pain, there will be sadness, because it's trying to tell you, I will comfort you more than God, but that's not true. Give it over to God. Let it die and walk away rejoicing, because that thing that wasn't good in your life has now been replaced by the goodness, the overwhelming goodness of the Lord. And it's scary. It's hard. But we don't need to fear because God alone is our comfort. And now imagine a sec- for a second if the rich man had followed Jesus. What would have happened? He would have lost all his wealth. He would have probably lost his status. He wouldn't have been comfortable. It would have been an extremely costly conversion for him in a worldly sense. But look what Jesus says at the end of the passage. Look at 28 through 30. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said to them, No one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus' answer to Peter is one of comfort, of our lives with him, of his care for us. Everything that he is promising right now says that I will surpass everything that you could possibly give up for me. What God is promising is that his comfort is incredibly more comforting than the comfort of this world. But like the ruler We have to be honest with what that means. It means that we cannot find comfort in anything in this world. We can't find comfort in our money. We can't find comfort in our reputation. We can't find comfort in the status of, I'm one of those normal Christians. We can't find comfort in our homes. We can't even find comfort in our relationships with others. We have to find comfort in God alone. And this is why, and why it's so important that when we recognize that we we have to be willing to give up everything for Jesus is why we need to know that we will not be abandoned. God is promising us here, right here, that he will surpass anything we potentially give up for him. There's a promise of eternal life, of eternal security, of eternal safety, of eternal comfort. And it is the truth that we will only be comfortable giving up everything when we find our comfort in Him alone. New Christians, I, I, love it. I love being able to sort of watch new Christians from the outside. Why are new Christians the best? They're the best because they have all their hope in Jesus. They have this overwhelming sense of love for Jesus. 
They're the best evangelists. Why are they the best evangelists? Because everything that they had placed their hope in in this world has been stripped away, has been taken away from them. Them pointing themselves saying, I'm good. Them saying, this thing will provide me happiness. All that stuff has been stripped away and has been replaced by Jesus. And, but for some odd reason, we as Christians, as we go along our walk, seem to lose that enthusiasm, seem to lose that understanding in which we get to a place of comfort in which we get to a place where we say, I have served enough. I have given enough. I have changed enough for God. But right here, right now, God is calling us to continue to get uncomfortable, to not be comfortable, but to be uncomfortable in this world. And what is the one, one of the main ways that God is calling us to be uncomfortable, to be willing to surrender all for Jesus? It's to share our faith. To share our faith is one of the most uncomfortable things you can do in a worldly sense. Because nothing in this world will ever make you comfortable in sharing your faith. You will be called naive. You will be called rude. You will be called judgmental. You will be called stupid. You will be asked questions you don't know the answer to. You will have people point out your sin and say, how dare you call yourself a Christian? I know how wicked you are. I know how evil you are. I've seen what you've done. How are you sharing your faith with me? I think you need to become better before you tell me to be a good person. And not only that, but we need to be honest that none of us, listen, none of us are going to be able to be ready in a worldly sense. We will never be able to read enough books. We will never be able to go to enough classes. We will never be able to be in a, a place where we present the gospel in such a way that we are free from accusation. We will never be able to present the gospel in such a way that we are free from questions. We will never be able to present the gospel in such a way where we are so perfect in the worldly sense that people can't point to our sin. But if we take the promise that God has given us, that He will not fail to comfort us, that He will be with us, that He is our security, that He is our comfort, then we have nothing to lose and everything to gain. We will want to introduce others to our great and good God who is good alone because of our overflowing joy that we have, that our idols have been put on the altar, have been killed by Jesus, and have been replaced by Him in our lives as our King and ruler alone. We will want to give up everything for God's goodness because that person sitting across from us has an opportunity to spend eternity with you. Your money, your reputation, your status, your titles, everything in this world will be gone at the end of the age. It will be nothing. It will be dust. But that person that you look at, that friend, that family member, that coworker that you look at, they have an opportunity to be in eternity praising God with you. Are you willing to get uncomfortable? Are you willing to give up everything so that you have an opportunity to share the good news of the gospel with that person so that they may meet Jesus? There is nothing in this world that we should not be willing to give away, and, and there's nothing in this world that can't be taken away that Jesus doesn't promise us, I will comfort you. I will replace it. I will be more flowing joy in your life than anything of this world. And so now this go takes us back to the original question. How do you feel being told what to do? Because Jesus is telling us to do something right here and right now. He's actually telling us three things. First, gaze upon the overwhelming goodness of the Lord. Spend the rest of this worship, if not the rest of the day, reflecting on how 
good and mighty our God is. And those times in which you look up and you go, I think I'm a pretty good person, that's the time to return to Scripture, to see how good our God is, to look and see how He has made His creation, that He has cared for people, that He has loved people way more beyond than we can even fathom. Second, go kill your idols for Jesus. Let Jesus challenge your possessions, your attitudes, what might have been taken hold, what you might be holding on to tightly, what has put you under slavery. What is Jesus saying to you today to give up and follow me? And finally, no longer find comfort in this world, but instead let's commit to get uncomfortable. And I'm being serious. I, I was talking to a youth student the other day, and I said, Christians are weird. And he said to me, well, we're weird in a worldly sense, but we're normal to God. And I thought that was spot on. So let's get weird. Let's get uncomfortable. Let's not be the normal Christian that the world would call us, but let's be the Christian that God has called us to be. Because we can be the best evangelists because God has rescued us. God has saved us. God will go with us, and God is our only comfort in this world. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God alone, that it's not based on our works, it's not based on our actions that we can point to and say, I have done well. I have done good. Look at all the things that I can rack up, but instead, we get to point to you and say, look what Jesus has done. Look what you have done for your people. We pray that anytime we are tempted to call ourselves good, that instead we fall humbly on our knees before you and say, you, God, alone are good. And we pray that the idols, the things that try to take hold of us, the things that we hold on too tightly in this world to give us comfort, to give us security, that we bring it to your altar and kill it for you that we turn it over for you, that we release it to you so that it may be replaced by your joy and your love and your comfort and your security, and more importantly, and most importantly, your salvation. And we pray that we get uncomfortable, that we don't look to the comforts of this world, but we look to your love alone as we spread the good news of the gospel, as we spread your love into this world, as we look across from people and we say, I want to spend eternity with you. We thank you for this worship this morning that you have saved us, you have called us, and you have rescued us. In your name, amen.